0: Lord, we praise you and thank you that even when we are weak, you are strong. Lord, that you hold us and that you've given us your promises to hold on to. And Lord, we thank you so much for that reminder this morning as we've been able to sing together, to worship you together. I pray that as we enter a time of looking to your word, would you teach us, would you guide us, would you help us understand what you've said and understand what we are to do with what you are telling us this morning. I want to thank you again that you brought us here together, and I pray that you would continue to bless our time and receive glory as we continue to worship you this morning. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. Alright, we are going to be back in Matthew, we took a little break last week for Easter um, and looking at the book of John, but now we're going to be back in our studies of the book of Matthew. We left off in Matthew chapter 26, uh, right at the end of the chapter, and that's where we'll be picking up. So as far as Matthew goes, today we'll be looking at the verses 69 through 75 of Matthew 26, which is only six verses, rest assured that does not mean the sermon will be tiny and short. Um, I'm sure all of you are worried about that. Um, We'll be looking at some other passages today as we attempt to take a look at the denials of Peter. A pretty famous story, many people know of it, uh, denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows, and that even becomes a story that we tell during Easter time, and it's something that uh, all the gospel writers actually do talk about, so it's obviously an important thing for us to look at, and I hope by the time we're done today, uh, we will see, we'll be encouraged uh, which seems strange and such a depressing passage to leave encouraged, but I'm praying and hoping that'll be the case this morning. In fact, uh, we're going to be diving into the concept that we just sang about, uh, the fact that Christ will hold us fast. God will hold us fast even when we can't hold on to him. Even when we lose our grip at times, he will hold us. And we're going to talk about that. And I think Peter learned that valuable lesson even through this terrible ordeal that he went through. Uh, Before we get to our passage today, I'm going to start with an illustration, move into some review, and then we'll get going into today's passage. Uh, But one of the jobs I had when I worked for a summer camp uh, for, uh, I think it was the last year I was there, I was the climbing wall instructor. Now uh, I know you guys uh, wouldn't have guessed that by my physique, but I was, I did, I did I did oversee the climbing wall, and that didn't require me to climb. Okay? It just required me to tell other people how to do it. Um, and so I was able to do that fairly well. Uh, but the summer, it was interesting to watch how kids would respond to the climbing wall. Uh, there were always some kids that were very excited, that would just climb and not have any problems. There were kids that would have so much fear they wouldn't even start the wall, because they wouldn't even go on the easiest wall, because if, even if they got up just a couple feet, they would freak out. And all the kids were different. But there was one thing that seemed to always, um, that always be very a common factor. Whether it was a kid who was really excited about climbing and would get all the way to the top of the wall, or whether it was a kid who was really afraid and had only gotten up halfway, uh, when it came time for them to come back down, um, there was one common denominator and it was always pretty much this, until you had to teach them that this was not how you're supposed to do this, they, all of a sudden, when it's time to come down, they didn't want to. Right? Because now they know they're up there. They're holding on to these rocks that are into this wall. And the last thing they want to do is let go of the rocks that they have in their hands. Uh, and so you'd watch them grip with all of their might just to stay on the wall. And then as the spotter or the belayer, I'd be down there or one of our staff members would be down there. And we'd be saying, you just need to let go of the wall. You need to sit back. Let us do the work. We've got you. We, we've got the rope. We're not going to let you fall. Actually, there's this system that we have in place. This, we sh- would show them how it works. Like You can't fall. This system will, will, will protect you. You've got a, a strong adult that's here to help you. You just need to let go of your grip on the wall and just let, your, let us get you down. And, and so many kids had so much struggle with that. And they would grip and they would grip and they would grip. And eventually, their grip wouldn't last. As much as strong as some of these kids thought they were, they would try to tell me, well, I'll just, I'll just climb down. You don't, I don't want to sit back. I, I want to climb down the wall. And I would say, that's actually not safe. You're not supposed to do it that way. And they would try to still start doing it, and then eventually they would lose their grip, and then the fall would actually be a little further than they would have preferred. Had they just sat back, it would have been nice and easy and calm, but instead they would have a jerky ride down at some points because they were so intent on gripping the wall for themselves and not willing to trust the spotter it really made the experience that much worse than it had to be. Um, and instead, it could have been a nice and easy trip down, but instead they had to fight because they trusted in their grip more than they trusted in the spotter. So that illustration, hopefully will just get our minds thinking about what we're going to talk about as we look at what happens in the life of Peter and what happens not only when he betray or denies Jesus, but then as he moves on, Jesus meets with him again. We're going to have to go back to the book of John, and then we're going to finally go to what Peter wrote in his books that he wrote in the New Testament through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in First Peter, and we're going to look at what he says there that is probably probably an, outco- an outflow of what he learned from this experience. So let's do a little bit of review before we read this. First of all, we need to understand where we are in the story here, where we are in the narrative of what's been happening is now we're into the last Night of Jesus' life where he's only got a few hours left to live before he's crucified and we see right now what's happening is that Jesus is being interrogated by the Jewish authorities in the middle of the night before he would be crucified the next morning. So Pastor Justin did a great job of unpacking that for us a couple of weeks ago as we looked at this idea that we see that Jesus is in the midst of this interrogation, not so much of a trial as it just is trying to figure out a way that they could charge him to get to the point where they could kill him. And the Jewish authorities are doing their very best to do that. That is in the midst of what is, that's what's happening in the midst of what we're going to read today. Jesus is being questioned, he's being interrogated, uh, and he's being persecuted, really. And that's what's happening as Peter is going to be watching all of this happen. Now we also need to remember, if we go back in this chapter, verses 31 through 35, uh, what Jesus has already said to Peter and what Peter said to Jesus. So, um... I don't have these verses on the screen, but just listen, or you can go back if you're reading along. Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35, uh, and you'll remember that this happened. Um, Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Keep that in mind. We've already seen this happen. Jesus told Peter, You're going to deny me. And Peter, what Peter's basically saying, going back, is just, No, I'm strong enough. I'm not going to, this isn't going to be me. I'm going to be loyal. We see that that Peter vows that he will remain loyal even to death. Even to death. These are big words, strong words, brave words. But as so often we say, it's always easier said than done. And that's what we'll see in today's section. So today we will see Peter's prideful confidence in his own loyalty is tested. Peter's prideful confidence in his loyalty is tested today. And the questions we're going to ask is this, how will he do? What will happen? Will he be able to keep his grip? And obviously, these are kind of rhetorical questions. We know that he will not. The question then today is this, what did he learn from this experience, and then how can we learn from it as well? So instead of just focusing on Peter and saying, how dare you do this, Peter? I can't believe that you would say you're not going to deny Jesus, and then you do it. Shame on you, Peter. Instead of that, what I hope today we will see is, from Peter's experience, What is it that we can glean that he learned or experienced as a result of this? And then how can we learn from that as well? And so that's where we're going to be going today as we journey uh, with Peter in one way. So let's start by looking at Peter's denial. Let's start at looking at the very thing that happens. Matthew chapter 26, uh, again, verses 69 through 75. 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, "'You are with that Jesus the Galilean.'" But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This was the man. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So as we see this short passage, we see the failure of a man who thought he could stand on his own, who thought he could keep his grip. But as quickly as the trouble came, he was willing, he he was not willing to, to stick it out. So we see a couple things happening, though, in this passage. First of all, we see Peter finding himself in the courtyard to observe the interrogation of Jesus. Let's not miss this. Jesus did come part of the way. He didn't run as far as the rest of the disciples may have. He was in the vicinity. He was in the courtyard. He was close enough to observe what was going on. Actually, uh, he is close enough, as we're told in other passages of Scripture, where Jesus could see him. So we know that he is in eyesight. We know that he is here. In, so he's having some level of bravery. He's there to observe what's going on, but he's not there to participate with what's going on. He's only there to watch. He's put himself in a place where he's watching what's going on, trying to figure out what's going to happen next, but he's not really right there experiencing the action. He wasn't willing to be with, with Jesus. He was only willing to be on the outside, on the fringe. He wanted to stay in the fringes. That's where Peter was. And so we already start to see that, yes, there was some form of bravery, if you will, in the fact that he was even in the vicinity, but he didn't even now. We see his loyalty is not what he says it would be. Remember, he said he was willing to die, and yet he's not willing to go in. And so we see that's where Peter is when this happens. And as he is there, we see that Peter faces his own interrogation. As Jesus is facing his interrogation, uh, and passing it, and doing what he was called to do, Peter is failing his interrogation. He denies that he even knows Jesus three times. Three times he says, I do not know Jesus, and each time it gets worse and worse and worse. It's not just that he says, no, no, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. He starts that way. But then he goes on, he says, no, I'm telling you, I don't know the man. And finally, he's cursing himself. He's basically saying, may God kill me if I'm, telling the tr- if I'm lying, I don't know the man. This is how far Peter is willing to go to deny Jesus. This isn't just a casual denial. He does not want people to know that he is in league with Jesus. It's, that, it's very, very clear in this passage that that's where he's at. Now, we could definitely take some time to figure out why this might be, but I don't think we have to dissect it too far. I think it's pretty obvious at this point, Jesus is being persecuted, he's being mocked, he's being questioned. At this point, Jesus has told the disciples what's going to happen, that he's going to die. I think Peter is at the place now where he knows that if he tells people that he's with Jesus, he might have the same fate that Jesus does. And he's afraid of death. Now, the fear of death isn't always a bad thing, because death is bad. So we don't want to experience death, but it shouldn't create a problem in which our actions follow through with this type of denial in self-preservation. And Peter's self-preservation comes to the forefront, instead of his loyalty. The loyalty that he said, now keep in mind, this, how much, how, how polar opposite what he said and what he did is, Jesus, I, even if everyone else leaves you, I will stick with you even to death. That's what he said to Jesus. And now here he is, the very opportunity he said that he would take. And he, he doesn't. He denies Jesus. Says he doesn't know him. And surely fear was a good part of this, not wanting to experience the same that Jesus was about to experience. And so we see this happening. Then at the end of our story today, we see indeed the ro- the rooster crows. Uh, other passages will tell us it was the second crow. Uh, and the idea is at this point the rooster has crowed. It's done. It's crowing. Uh, we again we see under in other places that he falls under the gaze of Jesus. Jesus looks at him at this point, and at this all of this comes together. And he remembers what Jesus said. He said he looks at Jesus. He remembers what Jesus said, and then he went out and wept bitterly. Indeed, this is sorrow. He immediately knows what he's done, and he immediately knows that this was not what he should have done. He knows this was sin. He know he let down his Lord, and he feels it immediately he weeps he leaves i have to assume in a lot of ways peter would have thought all hope was lost for him not too far before in the book of matthew jesus says if you deny me before men my father will deny you and so i have to think peter is thinking he's in that camp that he's going to be been denied by god because he was not strong enough he was not strong enough to hold his grip but I think as we see what happens after this, that Peter is restored to hope. I believe that all people have hope even in the midst of their greatest failures. And I think this is happening for Peter. And we're going to see that in just a moment. After he weeps, we see that Peter is indeed humiliated and ashamed. In a sense, he was humbled his pride that he held so dearly that he could hold his grip and he would make sure that he did not turn away from Jesus, all of that pride was stripped away and he was humbled. Instead of humbling himself, he put himself in a position where he was humiliated and ashamed at this moment. And again, as he may have thought he lost hope, we see Jesus comes back, Even when Jesus talked to Peter, he said, hey, you're all going to deny me, but I'm going to come back and meet with you in Galilee. Remember, Jesus said that earlier in this passage. So Jesus has already told them, that's not the end of the story. So there's still more to the story, and we're going to see what the more to the story is just in a moment. Actually, we'll go there right now. So we're going to go from Peter's denial. We see what he did. Now we're going to see Peter's restoration. Peter's restoration, uh, and that happens in John 21, 1 through 19. John 21 1 through 19. And we see this is uh, an opportunity where Peter and Jesus come together and there is restoration that is seen. And we will see that what happens here will set Peter on a trajectory for the rest of his life that will, instead of denying Jesus, will cause him to follow Jesus even to death, like he said he would do originally. But now he knows that he will through Jesus and his promises. Let's look at John 21, 1 through 19. Uh, so Jesus has already returned, and, and he's already come back to life. He's already been seen by the disciples. Uh, so this is not the first time all the disciples have seen him. They know him. This is after Thomas has felt his, uh, his wounds. He knows that Jesus indeed has risen again. So that's the context we find John 21 in, and this is what we read in verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas... Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the, son, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and, the two, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in from the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there was so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. Now, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Long passage. We're not going to break it down in all the different pieces. It's not our main passage for today, but there's a few things that we need to look at. First of all, I loved how this starts. Okay, Jesus, uh, you know, tells him, hey, cast the net, you'll get more fish. At the point that this happens, John immediately, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we assume is John, knows. He knows. This has been done before. Jesus has done this before. This is Jesus. It is the Lord. And so as soon as Simon Peter hears this, what does he do? He jumps into the sea. I love this picture. So Jesus has already met with the disciples. He's seemingly, from what we understand, already met with Peter. I assume they've already had conversations about what happened on that night when he, when he denied him. But at this point, Peter is so ready to restore a relationship with Jesus that he doesn't wait to get the boat to shore before he jumps out to see him. No, he just jumps right in. You know, this is Peter, right? He jumps into everything. And this is what he does. He jumps into the sea to swim to shore to see Jesus. And he does that, and we see his desire to have this relationship with Jesus, to be restored. Because, as we're about to see, he truly does love Jesus. He had a failure at a moment when he should not have had a failure, but yet he still has a love for Jesus. And so he jumps in to go see him. Not a major point of this story, but I love that, that picture. He jumps in to get to him. And then we see, uh, after they're having breakfast. The disciples are all having breakfast together. Uh, there's fish and there's bread. That should be reminiscent of something that Jesus did as well when he fed the 5,000, 4,000. We see that it's obvious this is Jesus. They weren't sure at first, probably from a distance in the sea. They couldn't make him out, but now they know it's him. And then Jesus pulls Simon uh, Peter aside. He pulls Peter aside. And he has this conversation over breakfast. And in this conversation, what we see happen is that Peter affirms his love for Jesus three times. Three times Jesus asks, do you love me? And three times Peter says yes. Now notice the progression here, though. At the last time that Peter says yes to Jesus, uh, he's, he's, he's grieved. He's grieved. I, I find that very interesting as it says this third time he is grieved. Uh, and why would he be grieved? Well, he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he was grieved. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. That third time... Think about what that would have reminded him of. There's other reminders that are happening here, by the way. A charcoal fire. Another passage will tell us that that's where he was around a fire when he first denied Jesus that night. And now they're around a fire again. They know who Jesus is. Jesus then asks him three separate times, do you love me? And that third time, Peter had to be thinking, yes, you know I love you, and I know the three times I understand what's going on here that I let you down three times, but God, I love you, Jesus, you know I love you. You know I do. And Jesus goes on and basically says, Since you love me, feed my sheep. He says that three times. So not only is he going to restore Peter's relationship with him, but he's going to restore Peter's uh, occupation, which is going to be leading people to Jesus, to shepherd his people. That's That's what Jesus is telling Peter he's going to do. This is an opportunity for Jesus to not only forgive and restore Peter, but also to commission him. And we're going to see that as he continues to talk to him. Now, I want to stop here because many of you have probably heard sermons on this very passage that tries to make a big deal about agape versus phileo love here. And both words are used interchangeably in this passage, and some people think it means more than it does, or maybe it does. Here's the thing. Let's focus on what we need to focus on. Jesus asked him if he loves him. Peter says yes three times. It's the exact opposite of what happened when he denied Jesus three times. The words for love in the book of, in the whole book of John are, are actually interchanged many times. There's times when we think that agape should be used, but a phileo is used. By the way, agape is self-sacrificing love. Phileo is a brotherly love. But we actually see through the book of John and through other, John's other books that these two types of loves are often interchanged, and they're, they're intertwined. They go together. They're not necessarily separate. They're together. And the idea here is what we see is that simply that Peter is reaffirming that, yes, I love you, Jesus. I know I denied you, but I love you. And Jesus knows that he does. And so Jesus then, even though he doesn't say the words, I forgive you, it's obvious that that's what's happening because he then tells Peter, well, go and shepherd my sheep. Go shepherd my people. This is a restoration and there's no question about it. And so where we left with Peter's denial, it looked very bleak. He thought it looked bleak. He was weeping. He thought there was no hope. We may have thought the same thing, but as we go forward and we see what Jesus did with Peter, he restored him. And we see this restoration happen. And then it goes to the very last couple words where Jesus says this. After saying all this, he says, follow me first time he told Peter to follow me was when he called him to follow him to be his disciple in the very first place. It's a recommissioning, no question about it. Jesus is restoring Peter not only in relationship, but also in his calling. He says, follow me. But he also warns Peter in the midst of this. Jesus calls Peter to follow him, even though it will mean death. Very interesting as we look at this. Based on Peter's confession of his love for Jesus, Jesus recommissions him to follow him and shepherd his people. No doubt about it, though, this love and commission will lead to persecution and death. What Peter was afraid of is actually going to happen, but he's called to follow Jesus anyway. Notice that he said to Jesus, I'm going to follow you even if I die. Then he doesn't back up his words. He's not willing to die for Jesus. But now Jesus says, by the way, you're going to follow me now, and it will end in your death. And we're going to see through the rest of the New Testament we're going to see through the rest of history that Peter followed Jesus and uh, what we're told uh, is that he did end up dying uh, for his faith and so we understand that this was going to happen and Jesus says follow me it's going to lead to your death, but it's worth it and Jesus is the one who restores Peter Peter didn't restore himself Peter didn't make didn't wasn't like okay i'm going to Make up for those three denials. I'm going to make sure that I do really, really good things for Jesus. No, this was Jesus restoring Peter. Because Jesus had the power to do that, not Peter himself. We see Jesus doing that very clearly in this passage. And so Jesus is now calling Peter to follow him. So Jesus does follow him through the rest of his life. He becomes a leader in the, in the church, uh, one of the apostles. And then he writes a couple books that are found in our New Testament. As God uses Peter to write his words, we see something happen where I believe we can learn from Peter what he learned from his denial and restoration that he found in Jesus. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. And we're going to be going to the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 4, and we're going to go through chapter 5. But 1 Peter 4.12 through 5.11, we're not going to read the whole passage, we're going to cut it up into chunks. So in our first chunk of 4.12 through 19, this is what we're going to see. Okay, we're going to see Peter's exhortation. Peter's exhortation in 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 4, 12 through 19. The first thing he's going to tell us is this. Don't be ashamed when you suffer for Jesus, but trust in your creator. Let's read what he says here in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. So Peter says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in far that you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit and glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What we see here is again that we shouldn't be ashamed when we suffer for Jesus because indeed suffering will come for all of us, but we must not be ashamed of Christ, but instead see it as a blessing and an opportunity to do good to others. I think Peter remembered the day when he was ashamed of Jesus. When he was ashamed of Jesus and denied even knowing him. And he did not follow this. This is a do as I say, not as I did type of situation. He says, listen, fiery trials are going to come. Suffering is on its way. You're not going to get away from it. You're going to be insulted for the name of Christ. This is going to happen. You're going to suffer as a Christian But then he ends in verse 19 saying, but let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As again, this is an opportunity to do good as we trust God, not trust in our own strength. Peter doesn't say here just buck up, strengthen yourself, get ready. Like you need to make sure that you are uh, strong enough to handle this. No, he says at the time when you are suffering, Don't handle it by yourself, but instead trust God who is the creator, the one who created you, who sustains the world, who is in charge of everything. Trust him and do good in the midst of it. Focus on following God and trusting him in the midst of suffering, in the midst of insults, in the midst of times when you are being persecuted for your faith. It will happen and trust God through it. That's what he says. He, wasn't, he didn't do that around that fire that night in the courtroom or in the courtyard. But he says we should as we follow Jesus. The next thing he says, we're going to look at verses 1-7 through seven in chapter 5, and simply live and lead others in humility. Live and lead others in humility. This is what he says, 1 Peter 5, 1-7. through 7. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Notice there, a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Second time Peter says do as I say not as I did. Right? Remember Peter was full of pride. Prideful confidence in his own loyalty that he could be strong enough to hold on. That he was going to serve Jesus and and love Jesus and he was going to be right next to Jesus even if it meant his death. But when Push came to shove and the test came. He failed it because he was unwilling to be humble. And so instead of humbling himself, he was humbled. He was humiliated. And so we see Peter says what we need to do both as leaders and as those who are just part of the church of God in general, whether leaders or not leaders, that all of us clothe ourselves with humility because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And again, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he, at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. At that time, Peter made decisions based on his anxieties. He was afraid of what would happen if he, didn't, if he told people that he was with Jesus. And his anxiety and his fear overcame him and controlled his actions. But here he says, don't. He says, humble yourselves. Know that God is in control and cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Those times of fear those times of confusion, those times of anxiety, those times when you don't know which way to go and where things are going, you can trust God and cast them on Him. That is the action. Not to deny Him or walk away from Him, but instead to walk into Him, to to embrace Him, to walk into what's going on instead of running away from it. And the understanding is in those times of fear and anxiety and concern, you run to Jesus. You trust him, you cast your cares, your anxieties, you cast everything to him. That's what Peter says. Peter didn't do that in the courtyard that night, but he says for us that we should do that. See, Peter trusted in his own strength and the ability to preserve his own faith. He was gripping the wall and wasn't willing to let go. But now again, he says, do as I say and not as I did. He says, be humble and place yourself under the care of God himself. He's the one with the mighty hand. Watch that he says that. We don't have the mighty hand. God has the mighty hand. So we can't trust in our own strength for the life that we live. We can't trust in our own strength that when we do experience suffering that we're going to be able to get ourselves out of it. But instead, we need to entrust ourselves to our Creator. We need to cast our cares upon God. We need to put ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's what Peter is saying. And going back to our illustration, it's simple. Trust in the spotter and not in your own ability. Trust that he's got us. And so that's what he says. He says we need to live and lead others in humility. Again, he was ashamed at a time he shouldn't have been, and he was prideful when he shouldn't have been, and he's he's telling us to do the exact opposite. And then he finishes by encouraging people to be ready. And so the last thing we're going to see is to be ready for opposition. To be ready for opposition, knowing that our sovereign God will hold us fast. Be ready for opposition, knowing that our sovereign God will hold us fast. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Here he writes this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, Amen. This is how Peter ends this section. And watch what he's saying. These verses really tie all of what we're saying today together. I believe Peter wasn't fully prepared for his test. But he reminds us that we must be ready for ours. That opposition is coming. That there's an adversary, the devil, that is going to bring opposition to us in, our, in everyday life. It's going to come through persecution. It's going to come through suffering in so many different ways. And yet, he says, after you have suffered for a little while, trust in the God of grace. Because the God of grace, God himself, will be the one. Only through God's grace can we stand in the midst of opposition. Only through his grace can we be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. Peter experienced this as he sat, on, as he sat over breakfast with Jesus on the shore. He experienced what this means. That yes, suffering and and opposition and and persecution will happen, but he can trust in the God of grace who did do this for him. He restored him, he confirmed him, he strengthened him, and he established him. That was Jesus' job. God did that for him. And now he's saying, God will do the same for you. So in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard times, when times are tough, when you don't know if your faith is going to fail... You can trust that God will hold you fast. God has you because he will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. And why can he do all of this? Well, we're told at the end, to him be the dominion forever and ever. He's the king. He is in control of all things. He is the sovereign one that has ultimate dominion and authority, and it's an eternal dominion and authority. And so, therefore, He is the one that works in our lives to strengthen us, to restore us, to, to establish us, to confirm us, everything. If we want to hold on to our faith, it's not about us holding on, it's about Him holding us. That's what the song we sang, He Will Hold Me Fast, is all about. That God Himself holds on to those who are His. As we have experienced an opportunity to have faith in him and to trust in him and show our love for him as Peter did, see, Jesus restored him. Jesus strengthened him. Jesus established him. Jesus confirmed him. He did all of that. He commissioned him. And Jesus has done the same things for us and he will do it again and he'll come and he'll hold us. I don't know if you guys noticed. You can kind of see it up here in the background a little bit. But at the very beginning, the, the, title, the title slide uh, that we had um, you can show it up a little bit more. Maybe you've seen this picture. If you can get back to that, there you go. Maybe you've seen this picture before. I, I know sometimes pictures can be overdone and it might not be 100% accurate with everything, but I love this picture. I love this picture because it shows that Jesus is holding this man who, who is holding a hammer. The understanding that he loves us so much that Jesus is the one to hold us. And today, I want us to remember, as we look at the story of Peter, Peter thought he could hold on for himself. He thought he could hold on to Jesus. He thought he could hold on to the wall. He thought he could hold on to his faith. But when push came to shove, when the test came, he failed it. Because he wasn't living in humility. He was more concerned for himself than he was for Jesus himself. He wasn't humble and he wasn't ready for opposition. But he writes to us in 1 Peter 4 and 5. He says, don't be ashamed. Live in humility. Be ready for opposition and trust that God is the one who will hold you up. That's humility, by the way. Humility is saying, I don't have the strength to do this. God, I need you. It's a desperation for God in our lives. Whether we feel like our faith is faltering, whether we feel like we're enduring a trial that is unbearable, whether we are actively being persecuted, or maybe it's coming one day when we will be more actively persecuted, we need to remember the truth that God will hold us, that this is not us holding ourselves up, but it is Jesus himself who died for us, who rose again to, to purchase our redemption, to purchase us for himself. He's not going to let us go. He will hold us fast. And so some questions to ask as we conclude, and then we're actually going to sing He Will Hold Me Fast one more time this morning, and then we'll have an announcements after that. But some questions to ask. First of all, the first question is, are you denying Jesus? What I simply mean by this question is, are you living a life in which you are denying that Jesus is truly the Son of God? Are you living a life in which you are denying that, you, that Jesus is in your life? If you're denying it, it means it's because he's not really your Savior. So today I would say you need to know Jesus. Jesus. You need to quit living a life of denial and denying what Jesus has done, the fact that he came to this world to live his perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again, to buy us eternal life forever. We see all that happening. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus did all that so that we will trust him, so that we will believe in him, not deny him. So today, if, you have not, if you're not in a place where you know Jesus, where you're still denying that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did, Don't deny him any longer, but come to him in faith and trust him. Then the other two questions we all need to ask, are we living in true humility? Or are we, like, really just leaning into our own selves, our own works, our own strength, thinking that somehow we can earn favor with God, thinking that somehow this life is all about all the things that we can do to make God happy with us? To think that It's all based on my power, my strength, my hopes, my dreams, all of that. And I live in a way of living for myself. That is not humility. That is pride. Thinking that somehow that you are in control of your own life is simple pride. Humility says, Jesus, take control. I trust you. And that leads us to our final question. Are you trusting that you are being held by God? Whatever you're going through today, like I said, whether it's a crisis of faith whether it's a physical trial, whether it's a sin that you are not overcoming. It's not about your strength, it's about Him. Trust in God. Give it to Him. Trust that He will work in you, through you, and He will hold you. It doesn't give us the right to just sit back and do nothing, but as we trust Him, as He holds us, things will change. Not because we're strong enough, but because he's strong enough. With that in our minds, uh, let me close in prayer, and as I pray, the worship team will come up, and we will sing He Will Hold Me Fast one more time together this morning. But let's pray. Lord, I thank you for bringing us together this morning. I thank you for this opportunity we had to look at Peter's his fall, his failure. And yet, Lord, in the midst of his failure, uh, you restored him because you're a God of mercy and a God of grace that restores people, that establishes people, that strengthens people. And God, we thank you that you've done that for us as well. God, for all of us who are believers in this in this room, would you help us to, to see you as a God who is not going to let us go, who is going to hold us fast. God, for any of those who aren't here today who are not believers, anybody who was here that is not a believer, that doesn't know you, doesn't know what it means to be held by you, would you convict them of their sin and help them to see their need for you? And God, would they come to you to be held. God, we thank you this morning that you brought us together. I pray that this time that we've had together to look to your word would encourage us, that it would strengthen us, that it would confirm us, that it would establish us, and it would restore us, Lord. Would you do that for us this morning through your word? Now, Lord, as we're able to sing to you one more time, would you remind us again that you will hold us fast in all of life? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.